0: Welcome to the Album Adventures with Wally and Shanaz. I'm Shanaz. On the other end of this line is my friend and colleague, Wally. We have left it about six months in between episodes. This is like the difficult second album, Wally, but we've gotten there. We're going to talk about a very classic album. But before we get there, why don't you just give everyone a very brief reminder about what this show is about?
1: I can't believe it's been six months already, Shinaz. That's gone very fast, but hopefully it won't be six months before our next one. And basically, this show was just an idea that we had when we sort of thought we wanted to do a bit of a music podcast together. And, uh, how could we do it and make something that was interesting for people? And we sort of bounced the idea around that, hey, why don't we get, uh, an album that either you love or that I love and we'll, uh, can listen to it and go through it and pick it apart and say what we love and don't love and find some stuff that people may or may not have heard and that they may or may not want to listen to. But I'm sure. This one, I'll be very surprised if people haven't heard it before.
0: Yeah, and so the first episode we did was the classic Abbey Road by the Beatles, and we didn't promote it because we thought we'd put out a whole bunch of episodes and then promote the podcast, but of course, as we've already said, this is the second episode. So go back and listen to Abbey Road. Uh, It's a very interesting, if I dare say, episode. Wally takes the lead. He's the Beatles guy, and we discuss the Beatles for about 45 minutes, and... Yes, it's on all your podcasts, uh, applications and websites. However you listen to your podcasts, however you listen to this, you will find it. This episode, Wally, is about an album that changed my life. And sometimes that life-changing expression gets thrown around a bit too easy, but I can definitely confirm this changed my life and it changed many other people's lives, including, of course, the people in the band. There are three of them in the band. They are from Seattle, Washington, and they are a little three-piece band that could. They are called Nirvana, and the album is Nevermind. Now it's their second album. Their first album was an album called Bleach that was recorded for about seven hundred and fifty bucks, and they recorded it, I think, in a couple of days. It was released on Sub Pop. It did pretty well for an independent record, but still pretty small time in a sense. Fast forward a few years, and we get to Never mind. It was released on September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, and it was the first album to feature Dave Grohl on drums. He joined the band between the first record and this album. Never mind. It was was produced by Butch Vig. It did become a bit of an unexpected commercial success. So released in September nineteen ninety one. By nineteen ninety two, January, it was absolutely going bonkers, selling 300,000 copies a week. This was spearheaded mainly by the lead single, the life-changing single, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now, Wally, how many records do you think this has sold? How many albums do you think, and it is some time since it's been released, but how many albums do you think Nevermind has sold?
1: You said it was life-changing for you. I think it was life-changing for as you said lots of people. I think it changed music. I think it's, it's not often that an album just ush, ushers in a, a scene. So how many albums would that equate to? I don't want to say something silly. What about a hundred million?
0: Well, that's pretty silly. <laughs> it's much less, but it's still a lot more than you and I would ever sell if you and I were in a band. It's thirty million records, which is a lot.
1: A hundred million was a silly guess, but thirty million, yes. It's not surprising that.
0: Hopefully one of the biggest selling albums of all time. It is. It is. I don't know if anyone's ever sold $100 million, but 30 is million's a lot. And as you've already said, it became a very influential album in the history of music. They were pretty much the biggest band in the 90s, a very 90s band. Uh, they didn't last much longer than mid-90s due to the uh, untimely death of Kurt Cobain. But he's been dubbed the voice of a generation, and that's rightly so. Uh, It brought together a term that wasn't around really before their band, but a term created for their band and their scene called grunge. And it also had a focus on alternative rock. And at that point we were hair metal and hard rock. And a lot of people who liked guitar rock, that was kind of their only choice to, if they weren't exposed to alternative music in the late eighties, early nineties, before Nirvana, hard rock and you know, soft metal and that kind of music was everywhere. It was mainstream. You know, these guys singing about, you know, really sexist kind of terms about women and (laughs) about, you know, the rock and roll dream. And my favorite thing, Wally, was the kind of story about, like, the the drug-addled teen who went down the wrong tracks and then he ends up in jail. You know, bands like Skid Row, Motley Crue. They're all obsessed with these characters, I'll say in songs that just end up doing the wrong thing and in a really kind of bombastic rock and roll kind of fashion, you know, drug overdoses. And then they, Janie's got a gun and he, you know, he's, she's being abused. So they he, she shoots the guy, and then she goes to jail and <laughs> jail's everywhere. So in comes Kurt Cobain, starts singing about his feelings, pretty negative feelings mostly. And it definitely changed the way that, all the music was seen. It was a middle finger to the establishment and a whole lot of people rode the success, whether it was bands like Pearl Jam or smaller bands like Marta honey. Like there's a lot of bands that got signed to big labels because of Nirvana. So they changed my life. They changed a lot of people's lives, but they changed the way that music was seen. The only bands that really survived that scene while were your bands like Guns and Roses, Bon Jovi, that's kind of it from the top of my memory the rest were just sort of almost destroyed you know bands like poison they they would not sell what they were selling once grunge hit the
1: the real sound of an era wasn't it like you say it's taken out that 80s the end of the 80s hair metal the big i guess van halen type over the top tight clothes long hair
0: Mm.
1: yeah singing about women and drugs and whatnot and it was just the scene of I guess it's sort of the start of them i don't want to get too political but it's almost like the beginning of the end for, for america yeah that people are disillusioned yeah they're angry uh they just they don't feel connected with anything and i think that kirk Cobain's a lot of his lyrics on this album we'll go through when you go to the songs like it's about it's just he's disillusioned like doesn't connect in his relationships aren't working just everything just he just felt like an outcast and i think it really shows on the album but it's uh he definitely had a, a style of his songwriting, which we
0: will go into. Yeah, it's interesting you say that he felt disillusioned and an outcast because in a lot of those genres I was mentioning before, they kind of paint that story. But then, you know, they surround themselves in mansions with girls in bikinis and endless lines of cocaine and it all gets washed away <laughs> by this rock and roll dream of success and Nirvana were very much, well not into it for those reasons and obviously that became a thing where they became huge and they fought the system and i think the system kind of won to be honest but but yeah anyway that's a bit of background on where we were at the time the album had a budget of sixty-five thousand dollars, which even back then in those times is not a lot of money to make an album and what caught my eye was they recorded most of it in california so they went from seattle to california To get the the petrol money to make it to LA, they played a show along the way to make money. (laughs) And it's also documented that that was the first time they played Smells Like Teen Spirit at this show on their way to record it. So that's pretty cool as well. If you're at that show, I think there is a pretty scratchy video of that around the first time they play that song. And even then, people sort of go bonkers over it. We're going to talk about the artwork a little bit later on. That is a fascinating story in itself. So Wally, when I got into this album, I was in high school, and I was already listening to some pretty cool music that would kind of shape the way I would go down the road to my music listening, and then maybe even some of the the way that I perform music. But as I said, there was still some sort of hard rock kind of things hanging around my collection. But when this came around, when Nirvana came around, uh, it definitely changed everything. I remember seeing the video on Rage for "Smells Like Teen Spirit." That's the first time I heard or saw the song and even at that moment it just blew me away I was like what is this this is amazing and it didn't take long for my friends and I to really just get obsessed with it got the album you know bought the shirt and blessed to go see them which we might talk about a bit later on but that's where I was when were you exposed to Nirvana if if at all at that time were you into them at that time?
1: I think it's fair to say that I've I've never really been a Nirvana person, but it was impossible to avoid, especially Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was everywhere. It was on the radio. It was on Rage about four times every night. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be on Rage. And I was actually thinking when we were sort of going through the album, listening to it, to to study for this pod, that I actually don't think I'd ever listened to Nevermind All the Way Through before. I I certainly hadn't owned it, um, a couple of mates that had owned it and they'd listened to it in cars and stuff and skipped around and whatnot, but I honestly don't think I'd ever listen to it from song one through to to the end. Mm. So it was a bit of a, a learning experience for me. But I wouldn't go, hey I'm gonna to listen to Nirvana, but listening through these songs and you get these songs on the radio and that they have got a couple of songs that I really do like. Mm. And in just going through the album over and over again, there's even songs that are sort of it's a couple that I hated at first, <laughs> and then you hear it, and you think, "You know what? This is actually a good song. I like this song." So we'll we'll get into that when we go through.
0: Yeah, and for me, I hadn't listened to the album for probably six months or so, but I know it very well, and I played it to death for a long time, so I know it back to front. What was revealing to me listening to it for this podcast was Kurt's style of songwriting, and something that gets repeated a lot, and we'll repeat it when we go through the songs is the way that he'll repeat a verse to finish the song. So, for example, if you've got like verse one, two, three in your classic kind of songwriting, verse three, he repeats a lot, which is a repeat of either one or two from before that. I didn't really realize that was a pattern in his songwriting, and I have no idea why it's like that. Maybe it's to reinforce the point. Maybe he didn't have anything that was better. I'm not really sure that's something that stuck out to me and if you listen to this album back after you listen to this podcast maybe you can you can find some fascination in that for yourself okay well we're going to start with track one where it all began for this album and the song that changed lives smells like teen spirit Rolly, that is the very well-known Smells Like Teen Spirit, track one on Nevermind, the song that changed generations. And my first thought was that you can hear the sound change from their first album, Bleach, to this. So Bleach was recorded on, I think, an eight-track system. It's quite lo-fi, in a sense, for a grunge band. It's amazing. Go listen to Bleach. It's, it's brilliant for what it is. But it sounds like it was recorded in the garage. This sounds like it's recorded in a Hollywood studio. From that opening chord progression to when the drums come in, it is crystal clear, sonically perfect, but still for its time and even now, but for its time, it was an absolute game changer.
1: Is there a more iconic opening track? I think it would be very hard to find one in terms of like you hear that as soon as you hear that guitar hit mm. and then Dave Girls hit, hits those the drums, like the sort of a disco beat drums and he comes in and hits that and like I can't imagine there'd be too many people our age that you couldn't play the first two seconds of that song to and they wouldn't know what song it was.
0: Without doubt. I would I would say that if you didn't know that, you you don't listen to music at all or you weren't exposed to radio or popular culture. You were living under a rock or your parents didn't let you out of the house or whatever because absolutely for a certain demographic, definitely uh, they should be able to name that opening riff. But as far as being on an album, I mean... There's been a lot of great opening tracks and albums, but this has got to be up there with one of the best. Uh, it's interesting that it's there. They just went for it. When you put together an album, you have track listing, and you, you you pick your order of songs. Historically, for a time, track three was always your strongest song. They've gone with track one. It just draws you in. It does its job. It draws you in. Of course, it makes famous their most well-known quality, and that is the quiet, loud Uh, sonic repetition which they and they admitted it themselves took from the band the pixies and the pixies if you don't know and i'm sure everyone knows who they are but if you don't know the pixies were an amazing alternative rock band who were around probably four or five years before nirvana having success and their whole thing was sort of quite loud quite loud nirvana took that and went to space with it so this is a great obvious example of that and you'll hear it throughout the album uh you'll also hear lyrics like i'm overboard it's fun to lose i'm stupid and contagious i'm worse at what i do best Uh, and i note i noted wally on the first three songs he sings about guns and i thought Oh man, he's going to sing about it in every song, but he doesn't. It's just the first three songs. When I say just, first three songs, he mentions guns, which is a different storyline, of course. But I did also want to point out the line, here we are now, entertain us. From my memory of reading a whole lot of biographies on Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, I'm pretty sure that's what he used to say when he would arrive at a party. So someone's having a party, whether it's a college party or whatever he would reluctantly go to these parties and he'd sort of say to the people, here we are now, entertain us. And I've used that a lot in my life because I just think it's very funny. (laughs) I'm not saying that's what necessarily he was thinking, but I've always remembered that line. I think it's a great line, here we are now, entertain us.
1: I was just going to say about his lyrics, that this is the, the first song on the album and pretty much every, there's a couple that are pretty direct about what they're about, but I think that it's definitely a part of his style that he's vague. They have meaning and they're about something, but they—I get the feeling he was deliberately vague about things because he—he he didn't want to tell people what the song was about. So like, well, you figure it out. I've written the song, mm. and yeah, I definitely get that impression that his, his lyrics are deliberately vague and there's there's some pearls in, like you say, there's some pearls in this song.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also a case of him not not wanting to expose himself completely. I mean, he does it through the music. And he definitely does it through lyrics, but he also holds back. And there'll be a line where you think, oh, he's just going to tell me everything. And then he puts the brakes on and he just says something kind of, not absurd, but something just a bit, you know, out there and almost with no connection to the lyric before. And I think that's on purpose as well. Uh, I wanted to talk about the video clip, Wally. The video clip is fantastic. I'm sure most people have seen it. If you haven't, go look it up. But as I said before, I saw the video and heard the song at the same time. That was the first time I heard the song. It's very, in hindsight, very kind of record company. Let's create a scene. Here we go. I think that the label would have been licking their lips when they saw the finished product. And it's essentially them performing in a a high school kind of auditorium, very small one. There's a janitor and the kids are watching and in the first verse, they're pretty quiet and just watching. They start tapping their toes. And as the song builds up and builds up throughout, they just go nuts. And it culminates in them sort of, you know, tearing up the imaginary stage and just moshing with the band and grabbing their instruments. And it's fantastic. Like, it's it's just, you know, for me, when I was in high school watching this, I was like, this is where I want to be. This is amazing. And even to this day, the the, the clip still stands up. A perfect video for the song. Sometimes you get it completely wrong but I think the video propelled them as much as the song. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair enough thing to say. As I said, you couldn't, it was unavoidable when this came out and it made it big over here. And I guess one of the things I was going to say about the song was that I think because of that, because you saw it so much and saw the saw the video so many times, and Triple M probably played it three times a day for five years. Yes, yeah. I think it's easy to say this is the, it's the best song on the album, like the best in terms of the, the song and the the catchiness of it and just as you say it spawned a whole a, a scene but i think it's probably the song that not that if you didn't hear it again but it's one of those ones it's like when i was listening through the album like as i was listening and trying to pick up the lyrics and things to talk about and i find myself skipping it just because man i've heard this song so many times <laughs> i don't need to hear it anymore
0: so yeah i understand that wallet when you hear a song that's been maxed out throughout your life i get that you think you know it i think it's important what we're doing to listen to it where it stands within the album and and it's just a it's a corker it's for me it and probably because of the connection i have to the song i haven't got sick of it it's my ringtone uh it's the reason that my eight-year-old boy knows and likes Nirvana because my phone rings and he hears smells like teen spirit for me for our generation for me personally it's just that song you know every generation has one that's my one Uh, We're gonna move on to track two, this is In Bloom. that was in bloom track two from nevermind very good song wally uh it relies heavily on its chorus is some notes i've made i think the verse lyrics for me let me down a little bit in hindsight i know the song back to front but listening to it for the first time in a while first time studying it i think it's one of the and hear me out now weaker songs on the album it was one of the singles so other people obviously deem that to be incorrect they think it's very strong but some big Dave Grohl signature, drum rolls, everything you like about Nirvana is still attached to this song, certainly not talking it down. But for me, out of all the songs, I thought it was one of the weaker tracks in hindsight. What are your thoughts, Will?
1: It's funny you should say that, Stas, because I was going to say, this is probably the song I like most of the Excellent. Why is that? It's very catchy. The melody is very catchy. The lyrics are very cynical, uh, clearly about... it's, it's Seems to me like it's Kurt Cobain. It's the they're getting famous. People are coming to listen to them that didn't like them before. Now that they're famous, they listen to them. And Kurt doesn't really like that. But just I think it's it's got a really good tune. The chorus is great. Dave Grohl hitting the harmonies in the in the chorus going through. I just and I think maybe because I hadn't heard this one as much as the other couple of singles off the album that just listening to it. I obviously had heard this song before. But just listening through this was the one that i sort of found myself most excited about getting back to if that makes sense Mm. so it's uh i can can understand what you're saying about you think it's probably lyrically not as good as some of the some of the other songs on the album i think that's fair enough but just uh it's not poppy but it's more i think this is more listenable than some of the other songs and if this is just on in the background and you just hear that kind of he's the one going like Mm. it's a it's a good uh, drive along in the car, punch the roof
0: of your car up. <laughs> oh, you Yeah, without looking at my Nirvana Online notes, I'm pretty sure this is the fourth single. That still means it's one of the key tracks on the album for record companies and what they think the public are going to like. So it's still deemed a really important song on the album. Uh, the video clip is of interest to you because it's essentially how would you say it's them on a retro say 60s uh, late night tv show and they're the band and they've got a host there hams it up is it correct that that inspired your hero rivers Cuomo to uh do the buddy holly video that way is that right
1: i think it would definitely inspire his look the whole if you see if you see our early photos of rivers before He's the rivers that people would know now. If you don't know who Rivers Cuomo is or Weezer, you'll hear about them plenty as the episodes of this podcast go on. But I guess it's fair to say Rivers looks like what you would say a nerd looks like. He's got the, the short hair, the horn-rimmed glasses, the uh, definite nerdy vibe, and it, he got it from this film clip. Because before, if you see if you see old school photos of him, he had long hair, metal hair. And it's actually hilarious to see him like that. It looks very wrong, but I'm I'm 99% certain that, yes, it was the film clip of this song that he saw and decided, hey, that's a good look. I'm going to run with that. And from that came the the whole Buddy Holly film clip and off
0: Weezer went. While we're on your favourite band, Weezer, I think they've definitely, without doubt, they're a band that incorporated the quite loud, quite loud style of guitar tones.
1: A definite Weezer staple which is in the quiet loud, the the quiet verse, the loud chorus, even the quiet song with a loud sort of solo at the end of it is definitely a Rivers thing and Rivers, he loved this album. There's a song on the Red album called Heart Songs which basically explicitly talks about this album at the end of it. A lot of Weezer fans don't like that song but I think it's definitely from the heart thing and yes like you say it changed your life and it certainly changed Rivers Cuomo's life.
0: And also of note, in the song he says likes to shoot his guns before we get into track three while well, you might as well get it all out here. What listeners don 't know is that you and I went and saw Weezer in Melbourne only a few weeks ago, and you also backed up and you saw them in Sydney supporting the legendary kiss uh, i've got to say we we had a great time in Melbourne. Uh, the show was fantastic; they covered a lot of a lot of ground it was essentially a greatest hits track listing but with some other stuff thrown in and they sounded good they performed well they really just seemed like good guys and we had a ball
1: it was great and i'm really glad you made me go to melbourne snaz it was awesome first time seeing them live uh kiss was a different experience it was still yep. a good one but it was a different experience but as you say it definitely was the greatest hits set list and it was funny when i got home and i sort of you go on setlist.com and you read it but they played there's 10 songs on the blue album they played seven. The three that they didn't play are my three favourite songs. On the yeah, show. right. So, so I was a little bit unlucky there, but it was a great set, a great show, and hopefully I get to see them a few more times.
0: Yeah, and we will get to some Weezer albums as this podcast progresses. We're going to move on to track three, a very well-known song by Nirvana. This is track three. Come as you are. Come as- That was "Come As You Are," track three on Nevermind. The follow-up single, "The Smells Like Teen Spirits," the second single from the album, I'm pretty sure. And Wally, I love that this has an almost as legendary opening uh, as "Smells Like Teen Spirit." "Come As You Are," Chris Novoselic's uh, bass line, do 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 It's quite quite mimicked by anyone that picks up a bass. I, I love mm. that that 30 years later, however many years it's been, this song still really stands up. The whole album does, but this is a great song. I was really happy to reacquaint myself with this song. And I think I like it better now than what I used to. I mean, I used to like it quite a lot, but it was never necessarily a favorite of mine. But listening back to this as uh, a somewhat mature man, it, <laughs> it really stuck out for me. I, I really like it. Like in Bloom, it relies heavily on the chorus, but the more I listen to this album, the more this album relies on its choruses. I like the pre chorus of I believe the lyric is is of in memoria. Is that a word, Wall? Memoria? Memory. I just assumed it was memory. So whatever that is, I really like that part of the pre chorus. Yeah, I think you hear this on the radio still as well, so it's a bit of a timeless one. What are your thoughts on this?
1: You probably hear this more than smells like Teen Spirit. I think because it's a bit more mellow, this is probably a. Uh... Got its way under WSFM now, so even if you're flipping channels, <laughs> in Sydney, you'd be copying this one. I think, yeah, it's kind of similar to Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's got that unique guitar riff, it's instantly recognizable. It's got a bit of a funny production quality set. sound like it's underwater or something. It's got like that. I don't really know how you describe it, but it's definitely got a, a different sound to uh, some of the other songs on the album, but quite like this song. It's-
0: I want to note that in this song, he says the lyric i swear i don't have a gun and of course once kurt died that lyric went around both in a in a serious way and also you know for people who like to make jokes about people who die there was also a bit of a prank about that oh he lied he had a gun you know but i just thought i'd bring that up it's the third song in a row where he's mentioned guns but we probably don't need to go into that too much <laughs> we're just here to talk about the music uh next up wall this one is a bit of a belter this is track 4 breed All right, that was Breed, track four on Nevermind. It's definitely one of the heavier tracks. It definitely harks back to their debut album, which was out on Sub Pop. Wally, there's a Beatles influence in this band. Are you aware of that? A Beatles influence? No, I wasn't aware of it. When you listen to this album again, I think you can hear in some of the choruses the simplicity of the style of Beatles chorus with their choruses. You gotta pick the song to make it right. But he was a massive Beatles fan. He's a massive pop fan. And he was always fighting the battle between a much heavier sound and some of the songs on this album. And I'm not saying this song sounds like the Beatles, but I think I can hear influences in it. Like there are some songs later on we'll get to where you go, Oh, I can maybe hear it there. But in Breed, I think the guitar that starts the song, it reminds me of Revolution by the Beatles, that really heavily mm-hmm. distorted mm-hmm. guitar. This is a great song, I think. It's just about a guy, I think, who is disillusioned, he's shy, and I think it's just about being in a relationship. I don't mean to stare. We don't have to breed. We could plant a house. We could build a tree. I don't even care. We could have all three. That thing about Kirk Cobain that if you've read about him, uh, he wasn't the most outgoing person and certainly – in the few relationships he had that are known to people that he did struggle with that kind of thing. And this song is quite well documented. That's about uh, a past relationship. uh, I think with a lady from a band called Bikini Kill, who were part of the scene. And I think it's a great song. I think it's one of the best songs on the album. And I love the urgency of it. And again, don't forget we're in 1991 here and not to say that this music is unique, but it's definitely unique to the mainstream. So, sixteen-year-old kids turning this on—they may not have been exposed to this kind of music. And for a mainstream best-selling album, it's one of the more kind of, dare I say, punk rock songs. You've got any thoughts on this one?
1: That's what I was going to ask. This is punk rock, isn't it? Like this is a a precursor to event like Green Day, The Offspring. You could definitely listen to. When I th- I don't think I've heard this song before. Before we started listening for the pod. And there's a few on the album that I, I think we've spoken about it before, but I was surprised how punk rock Nirvana are. I never really associated them mm. with that at yeah. all. But this is the first one of the songs that like, if you, if you put this in a playlist of like early offspring songs or early Green Day songs or what like, you'd be like, uh, you could almost convince someone, Hey, this is offspring. It's so much like they, that they've obviously derived their sound from. Them. And like I said, there's a few on the album that I was really shocked that. Yeah, that this was part of their sound. I wasn't aware that that they were so punky. I guess mean, like, you, you obviously had never heard this on the radio here, and i certainly not on the radio stations that I listen to. If you ask me what genre of song is this, like this is punk rock.
0: I think that Dave Grohl played a major part in this because, I mean, the debut album, it's got some fast songs on there, but nothing quite that hits this mark. I guess Nirvana, if you were to sort of think about their tempos, they're almost a mid tempo kind of band, but then they have songs like this which is obviously very fast very upbeat very frenetic they did it really well I mean they didn't do it a lot it was probably every four or five songs in a live set they might do something like this absolutely sums up the uh the feel of the album the emotion it doesn't it's not worlds away from come as you are and smells like teen Spirit it's just a different uh different way for them to to play it's just a little bit quicker a little bit more intense i really like it It, it, it's a bit of a a bookend with another song we'll get to in a few songs time but why don't we go to the third single now while track five a song which i think our listeners will be familiar with a song called lithium
1: I'm so happy, cause today from my friends my head. I'm so ugly, That's okay, cause so are you.
0: Alright, well that was Lithium, one of the better known Nirvana songs. It's definitely one of their very established quiet loud songs. We keep saying that term, but it really is a thing with this band. And I think it's a very good example of a Nirvana song. If you were to put on a Nirvana song, I would almost put this on before Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think it'd be my go-to. It doesn't mean I think it's their best song, but I think it's the one that kind of represents them to the whole world. If, you, if the whole world had to hear a Nirvana song, I'd play them this one. The verses are quite descriptive in the way that he is. He doesn't give you a lot, and it's very sort of, Up and down emotions. I'm so happy because today I found my friends. They're in my head. I'm so ugly. That's okay because so are you. Like a very storytelling kind of style in this song. But very short, very to the point, and also very not make believe. It's just in his head. A lot of this, a lot of these emotions, and I think it was probably the perfect follow up to Smells Like Teen Spirit, as far as the mainstream singles go. The chorus, which you uh, sang to me off air, (laughs) is. Essentially, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and I think that, like, I'm not saying that's a Beatles influence by, because the Beatles would do something like that, you know, in 20 songs, but I don't think it's that far removed either. I think that he would have gotten away with that in the studio by saying, well, I'm sure McCartney and Lennon did that in a song. So why can't we? In a lot of ways, it sums up that emotion of the album. Like the album's called Nevermind, This chorus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot more substance to the song than that lyric. And I'm not a huge fan of that chorus because I'm a words guy and I want him to really tell me what he's thinking. But I kind of understand why it's there.
1: I've got a tash as this was a hell of a Christmas the year I got this. I don't know if it was Rock Band or SingStar, <laughs> but I got it. was on my PlayStation. And this is where the songs I knew, And I'm sure me screaming the yeah, yeah, yeah bit for SingStar was really annoying the hell out of my family. Yeah, yeah. It's a very simple chorus for a very complex song, I think. The more yeah. you listen to it and I read through some of the lyrics and was trying to get... Is this song about being depressed and finding God so you don't kill yourself?
0: I don't think it's about finding God.
1: I don't think it's about he himself. But I just wonder if it's like, as you say, it's a story about somebody that's lonely and depressed or their girlfriend maybe died and they found God. And the more I listen to it, the more I was thinking that all the kids at my school who wore Nirvana shirts, they never understood what these songs are
0: about. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I was yeah. sure of it. Of course, this song, like this song you just hear it in the background. He's singing funny lyrics. He does the screaming chorus. And you can just listen to this. You know, this song's not about anything. But yeah, I think, well, as I said at the top, that he's... His lyrics are deliberately vague, and I think a lot of the time they're conveying, uh, sometimes they're like, even if the message seems deep, I think he may have even been deeper than you think, or te- deeper than people would think when you're listening to the song. songs.
0: Absolutely. I don't think that he was phoning it in. I think it, it all represents something. I think he had a, a plan, and you know, for a guy who died quite young, like he accomplished a lot, but I think there was a bit of a, a plan to it. For a guy who didn't want to be famous... I think that he really wanted to just play music, and and that was the plan. And the more opportunities he got, the better he got at it. The better the studios got, the better the records got, et cetera. Et cetera. And I, I think that I think you're right. I think there's a lot of substance behind this guy. If if, if anyone just is listening to this, going these guys guys I don't know what they're talking about. He was just a stoner rocker. I mean, nah, he was way deeper than that.
1: Definitely a lot of depth to his songwriting, and yeah, it's, as you say, it's easy to dismiss him as oh, he's just a stoner and wrote these silly rock songs and whatnot. And I I think it's fair to say that he's probably not the greatest musician of all time. Like, I don't know that he was a, or certainly not a classically, what you'd say, a classically good musician. He had his thing and I think he taught himself and just played whatever he wanted. So certainly wasn't held to be, uh, this is what you meant to play. He's just like, I like this and I'm going to (laughs) play it. But, But yeah, whether his musicianship or not was the greatest of all time, I think even if you don't necessarily like, some of the music and some of the music's a bit too heavy for me and whatnot but yeah when you if you listen to it a few times and can get through and start understanding the lyrics and trying to figure out what he's talking about yeah I think a lot of the times it's there's more going on than, uh, than what's on
0: the surface So around track 6 or specifically at track 6 things get a little bit heavy this is a song called Polly
1: Polly wants a cracker I should get off her first. Think she wants some water to put out the blow torch. Use a me have a seed.
0: Let me clip dirty wings. Let me take a ride. Alright, well that was track six Polly and the quietest song or one of the quietest songs on the album and definitely a sonic reprieve at this point but lyrically it's one of the heaviest uh, of Cobain's career it's essentially a stripped back solo acoustic song and then there's some bass in the middle and there's actually some cymbal splashes which belong to a fellow named Chad Channing Chad Channing was one of the uh, previous drummers for Nirvana so it's the only song that Dave Grohl does not play drums on and it's the only song Chad Channing plays on. It's a bit of bit of trivia there for you, although I believe Dave does sing on it. Unfortunately, and I say that in the grand scheme of things, this song is about a real-life kidnapping of a teenage girl around Kurt's area in 1987, I think it was. So he was a bit younger. In Tacoma, Washington, a real-life criminal story. He just wrote a song about it. It's quite... Uh, specific about what it's about, but it's one of those songs. Well, I think that would have got played on, for example, a Triple M, and they would have had no idea what it was about.
1: And you listen to it a few times. Now, yeah, there's something going on here. When you read about, as you said, it seems like it's a kidnap, kidnapping and a rape. And I guess this is one of the more controversial songs from the album. I'm sure there'd be some uh, very religious people in America that wouldn't have liked mm. this. uh This sort of vibe game. I think the acoustic, stripped back nature of the song even makes it a bit more creepy too. It's. Uh, told from the point of view of The the Kidnapper, the album sort of shifts gears right at this point, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, we sort of have have these rock songs and we're bouncing along and we're happy and we're pissed off and whatnot. And then like, bang, this song hits. So, whoa, where the hell hell did this song come
0: from? In a few years when I come DJ at your 50th birthday party, I'm guessing this won't be on my track list for you. So it's that kind of vibe. It's a good song. It's just a big mood changer. And as heavy as the lyrics, Ah, and the, and what we're telling you it's about. It's not that heavy when you listen to it just initially. It's more if you do the background research and that kind of thing. I like it. It's like a nice place of the album just to sort of calm things down a bit. But then we come out of that into again one of the two probably most intense songs on the album. This is track seven, a song called "Territorial Pissings." All right, well, that is a song which is introduced by the bass player, Chris Novoselic, and he is quoting a song called Get Together from the 60s. And after that, you hear some amazing distorted guitars. You hear Dave Grohl going nuts. Definitely one of the faster, uh, more intense songs. I think it's a bookend to track four, Breed, which we talked about. Some really good lyrics in this one. I think it exposes Cobain very much as a person who sympathizes with the. Uh, female gender in the way that they've been held back over the years. He's very much uh, anti-sexism as far as all that stuff goes. He was a really good human in promoting, you know, not being homophobic and that kind of stuff. He was really, I guess, on the left for all that kind of thing, which is great. The lyric I love in this is, never met a wise man. If so, it's a woman. I really like that.
1: Much deeper than you think. I've got to be honest, I absolutely hated this at first. The first couple of listens through my like, oh, do i have to listen to this again and a couple of times i skipped <laughs> it's a funny the more you listen to it i, I actually like mm. it the, the screaming it's it actually makes it kind of unintentionally funny and i think it's i don't know if it's meant to be a funny song i'm, I'm sure at the end of it it's very chaotic and they were doing it deliberately to just be to show the frustration and whatnot but yeah the, the first couple of times this was it was hard going but it actually the more you listen to it the more at, a, at Definitely does grow on you. So it's, again, very fast, very heavy, very punk, I think, fair enough to say. But uh, just the the ending is just madness. I don't know what was going on. I don't know how many takes they had to do of it in the studio. But I bet they are having an absolute ball because they are going absolutely crazy.
0: It might not be a one take, but I think that's the style they were going for. And it represented a lot of their live performances. And you're probably the first person to ever use the word funny in a conversation about Nirvana, but I know what you're saying. Like, he, he really exposes his voice to the point where you're like, he's going to just break and fall down, and he doesn't.
1: It's music. It sounds like he's going to explode. It's, it's actually – it's not funny, ha-ha, funny. It's just, yeah, the boy you listened to it. And I just was so, – yeah, as I said, was thinking about them in the studio recording this song. Did they ever play this live? They go absolutely mental live. Like, the crowd would go absolutely –
0: I'm pretty sure they played this on one of their first uh, Saturday Night Live performances. It was this, and maybe "Smells Like Teen Spirit." I, I can't quite remember that. They played wow. it on one of those shows and went nuts, and they trashed the stage. And I think, I think, as far as the voice goes, I believe it was "Smells Like Teen Spirit" that was mocked. But I, it's the sort of thing where Widow Yankovic could and did, you know, in a loving way, mimic that voice. And, and that the end of territorial pissings, I think, is a good example of where he go. Now he's just being silly. I'm going to take the piss out of this. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, very uh, simple song played hard and fast.
1: I was just going to say. I think if you haven't heard it before and you listen to the album, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. Like the first couple of times, like man, yeah. what's going on? And then yeah, you know, the, the more you hear it, like, you know what? There's actually there's method to the. Yeah, they,
0: they repeat the idea to the point of explosion, basically. But it's jam it out. But in a really tight three piece kind of punk rock way. It's the equivalent of going to see Pearl Jam as a six piece jamming out alive to the end, or the doors playing Light My Fire, or whatever. Like, it's just, they've just got this idea and they're running with it. And I think it's a very live take. I think it's, I think it's, I think that they kind of went, that's the one, you probably won't get it any better.
1: It's just a cacophony of sound at the end, isn't it? It's like the, uh, well, you say they like the Beatles. I guess you can draw the, the parallel to the the musical sound in a day in the life where it just rises and rises and rises to the, the noise. It's just building, 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 and the urgency and whatnot doing that. So, yeah, maybe another a sneaky Beatles reference in there. All
0: right, now we're coming up to a favourite part of my album. This is track eight, Drain You. One well, baby, two. All right, well, that was one of my favorite Nirvana songs, a song called Drain You. It's track eight on Nevermind. I think it's uh, universally for people who like Nirvana, so not necessarily people that hear them on the radio, but people who own this album and a few more albums. I think they do always come back to this song as one of their favorites. It's a pretty accessible song in a lot of ways, very catchy. It's not overly intense sonically, like it's not a lightweight song by any means, but I think it's almost... A pop song in his in his style, and there's mysterious lyrics. It's grunge pop kind of radio style is what I've the note that I've I've written down. And I, I just I I love this from the first time I heard it, and I still love it when I hear it now. Uh, really good live song as well. The bit that stood out for me listening to it over and over the last few weeks was the middle instrumental section, and it's a building uh, of drums and guitars and all these sounds. And when I was doing some research, they said, oh, there's an aerosol can being you know, used in the middle of this song. And I was like, that's ridiculous. What? How, how, how could that be? <laughs> and then you listen to it, and it sounds very similar to, do you know what a sizzle cymbal is, a drum cymbal? I
1: think I know the noise that you're talking about in the mix. Yes. I, I had have, I have no idea what it was, but I definitely heard the noise in the mix.
0: If you listen on headphones especially, you can hear someone spraying a can. And it's sort of on the beat every, like, four or whatever. 30 years listening to this, I had no idea that's what it was.
1: I'm glad you talked about this bit because one of my notes I've got written down is I really like the bridge build-up in the middle with the release back into the...
0: Yeah, so the release the release, uh, culminates in what I've described as a guttural scream from Cobain, and it brings them back into, I guess it's verse 3, which again is a repeat of the first verse. And... It's absolutely brilliant, the timing, the performance, the mix of it all, uh, and the scream is very kind of, the scream is very descriptive of, of how this guy performed. Like, this part of his shtick was the scream. I mean, he was a good singer. He could sing quiet. You've, you've heard some of the unplugged stuff. But that scream in the middle of this song is also what he did so well and quite uniquely, and I, I think it's one of his, yeah one of his best songs. What, what, what are your overall thoughts on the song?
1: Yeah, there's definitely some more heavy themes going on in this one it's the like the very unhealthy codependent relationship um i read a bit about it where i think Cobain actually said that this song it's about a person who sweats and bleeds and cries for you and you don't give a shit. that's the uh that's where the screams coming from definitely some uh some heavy themes going on but I, again this is sounds very punky maybe i maybe i don't know what grunge is because this definitely sounds like nirvana like i, I think you said if you it almost sounds like Nirvana doing Nirvana in terms of the sound, but they're just I think it's the guitar, the real – I don't know. It just sounds very like – well, of course, it's early 90s, but that early 90s punk
0: rock. It's got that distorted, crunchy sound to it. Again, I, I, I'm only harking back to the Beatles because you and I love the Beatles and we talked about it in the first episode. But to me, the verses sound a little bit like – not like the Beatles, but I because I know that Cobain loved the Beatles – If you listen to the intro, one baby says to another, like it's just this catchy kind of, and you can say that about any band, I guess. I think people kind of might underrate how much he liked that band. We're going to move into a track I'd forgotten about how much I loved. This is track nine, Lounge Act. All right, well, that was Lounge Act and a song that I'd kind of forgotten about and also kind of forgotten about how much I love this song. I think one of the more obvious romantic relationship songs, and obviously it's not, you know, a top 40 love ballad or anything, but lyrically exposes a lot of emotions about that. Uh, There's a repetitive third verse that I keep talking about, and I like this song while it's... Instead of the quiet, loud thing that they do throughout the album, this song just builds from the start. So it starts at a level and just keeps going up and up and up. Some really nice uh, bass from Chris Novoselic. What I love, I think it's one of the features of this album, is if you get to the third verse and Kurt and his voice. It's not the most screamy you'll necessarily hear him, but he's at this range where he's belting it out, he's angry, he's upset just the way he sings that third verse, like the the music just takes him there and then he goes for it. And it's like, man, this guy, he's pretty revved up right now. And I think it's probably, it's probably the best song on the album for me.
1: Wow. That is a big, that's a big call. It's surprising. I I really like the bass line. It's very sort of funky, different, different sonically to the, the rest of the album. I think it's got that, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's definitely got a more, California is the wrong word, but it's not like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like a
0: warm. Like, you wouldn't say that, you wouldn't say Nirvana's a warm sounding band.
1: Almost beachy. It's not, it's not beachy, but it's almost beachy. It's like a beach adjacent kind of kind Well, that's, of that's thing. what I <laughs> meant I when I cool said that. it
0: starts at a level. So the level is the beach or whatever, and then it just builds. And yeah. by the end, it's nothing to do with the beach. But I think just overall, just a really strong song. I'm surprised this one isn't spoken about more. I mean, I'm sure it isn't if you look long and hard enough for it, but as far as one of his better-known songs worldwide, I, I'm surprised this one doesn't get mentioned more.
1: Is it because is it it's buried on the album a little bit? Maybe. It's come from Drain You, as you say, one that Nirvana fans would say one of their better songs. You sort of have this one in the middle. You go back into Stay Away, the next song, which we'll talk about, which is very heavy, punky-type thing again. Maybe it sort of just gets... Buried a little bit in the lost in the mix, maybe.
0: Maybe that's a good, uh, good segue. Let's go into track 10. Stay away. <laughs> That was Stay Away, Wally, and that, in my opinion, seems to be a song about the mainstream. There would be issues that he'd be soon facing on a daily basis that would somewhat send him uh, just down a a bad path. It's Mm. also, I think, a song that they could write really quickly, which isn't a bad thing, and... I think for me, it's not one of the strongest songs on the album. It's still a really good song. I still like it. I sing along with it. I don't skip it. There's no songs I skip on this album, which is a really great sign. But I think it's it's a classic track 10 of a 12-track album. It reminds me of Breed. It reminds me of Territorial Pissings. uh, But it's probably a little bit more radio-friendly. It's just a little bit more catchy, not so offensive in different ways. Interesting research, and you can hear it on the song. But he ends the song by screaming, stay away, like maybe eight times, whatever it is. But the last line, instead of saying, stay away, he screams, God is gay.
1: (laughs) I'm sure I heard
0: that. It's actually in the lyrics.
1: That'd be a a gay rights thing.
0: It is. Well, there's a story about him in high school and he painted it onto his friend's car. I don't know why he did that message about gay rights than any kind of religious statement. And as I said before, he did lean to the left, as we say, in, in a lot of ways, which I personally think you know, really cool. And every now and then he'd throw a lyric out there like that. That's probably a a big part of the song. It's very quick and minor, but for a song that I think is kind of a little bit, not throwaway, but a little bit less intense lyrically, I think that's where he kind of makes up for it. And it's like, whoa, what did you just say? Uh, but certainly <laughs> I could see you singing along this one, Mark.
1: This song needs something else, Kurt. Throw something in. No worries. I've got just the thing. I'll, I'll stick it on the air. Again, very, very punk rock. That's the most surprising thing for me about the album is how, if you told me to describe Nirvana's sound, I wouldn't have said before listening to this that they were sort of punk yeah. rock, but if anybody asked me now, I'd say, you know what, they're more, more punk rock and, yeah, the as we said, the genesis of Green Day and Offspring and obviously came from Nirvana. It's clear as day
0: when you listen to these out. So getting towards the end of it, track 11, this is On a Plane. So while that was On a Plane, in the words of your good self, a pop song, and it's a song about writing a song which is always uh, an interesting thing for me because I write some songs on the side myself and it's one of those things that you try and get away with but it's really hard to do, but I think you got away with it. And very classic sounding Nirvana, double track vocals and very much in the same lyrical vein as Stay Away. Uh, It's not so much about him being a troubled youth. It's not about him having depression or anything else. It's kind of about music and what music means to him and what he thinks it should be and what it shouldn't be. And uh, I've noted it has a fade-out at the end. and it, it, When I say fade-out, it's not like your classic fade-out. The instrumentation fades out and the vocals stay there, uh, singing away for, I don't know, five, ten seconds. So a pretty cool song. Not a feature for me on this album, but a pretty cool song.
1: It's funny, Shaz, because this one, I, I was going to say, it sounds like in blue. And so I was going to say, I bet it's one of the ones that you, <laughs> you don't like, and I know mm. that I do. Mm. It's the, it's obviously the yeah the difference in... The difference between us, I guess, is the, the type of songs that you like, and I think this one, again, the Dave Grohl harmonies yep. are really good. I really like the chorus. I'm glad you said it's about writing a song because, yeah, the what the hell am I trying to say and the one more message to go and whatnot, I was sort of thinking, is this about, yeah, is it about writing an album or a song or something like that? So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I picked up on that. I'm happy that uh, that's what it's about. So
0: It's kind of cool that not, not every song is like – deeply intense because it's an intense album as it is and not to say that it wouldn't be better if they were all like that but part of the reason it was such a huge worldwide success was that they could sort of do a song about you know a person being kidnapped and assaulted that they could do this song you know what i mean it wasn't just they weren't just pigeonholed in the one corner
1: there's definitely a broad spectrum of themes going on yeah, he was a he was a complex dude.
0: He definitely. was a complex dude. I think that should go down in history as a quote about Kurt Cobain. He was a <laughs> complex dude. Aaron <laughs> Wallace. Speaking of complex, we get to almost the end in a lot of ways. This is track twelve, something in the way. Underneath the bridge,
1: top of
0: All right, well, that was something in the way. It kind of closes the album, and we'll get to the reason why I say kinder in a minute. Allegedly, or apparently, a song about when Kurt was homeless. He was kicked out of home and living under a bridge for a period of time. I'm not sure how long that was, but he wrote a song about it. Uh, I really like the quiet nature of this song. I like that, you know, the obvious comparison would be to a song like Polly earlier in the album, but this is a different kind of intense and deep. It's not as bleak in a lot of ways, but it's obviously not a happy subject either. Yeah, I just think it's a very real, natural-sounding song. There's no real trick to it. It's just a a song. He's telling a story. The band chimes in when they need to, but overall it's a really quiet song. Uh, There's some cello in it, which they would have on In Utero, as well as the Unplugged album and some of their live uh, shows for In Utero. Uh, and around that time. So that was something that we incorporate into the future of Nirvana. And I really like it as an album closer. What are your thoughts on the, the style of the closing of the album so quietly?
1: Yeah, the quiet closer is a bit of a staple for heavy albums, isn't it? I think there's definitely when you get to spot in times, oh man, I can't have another heavy song, which we'll go into endless nameless in a minute. But in terms of actually closing the album, yeah, it's sort of the, the calm down, the... Uh, now, this is a very strange song, that as you said, like the lyrics are clearly sad, but maybe it highlights how clever that he actually was because they, the lyrics are hilarious again. It's like he's running his cigarette, he's living under the bridge, his tarp's leaking, but then he's saying it's okay to eat fish because they don't have feelings. What are you talking about? <laughs> he's definitely out there, and he's obviously got a way of, yeah, a very complex, taking a very complex topic, obviously being homeless or being lonely or being out on your own, living under a bridge, and like, I'm just going to throw in this lyric that people could, you could study this lyric for forever again. What is he talking about? Where are the fish coming from? Why is he eating them? Why don't the fish have feelings? Why is he talking about this? As I said before, I can quote me again. He's a complex dude. (laughs) He definitely was. I like it. I like the way that, I like closing the album like this. bit of the come down, the the calm down, the song of something to think about. And yeah, just throw in some more, uh, some out there lyrics to finish.
0: There's a thought that, the term "something in the way" was, you know, about his life, and whenever something would go good for him, something in the way would happen, and that was what that meaning meant. So,
1: say deeper, deeper again. See, it layers, of, layers, of, layers that, on, layers on, layers. That's an
0: interpretation, but it does make sense. And then, what we get to after that is a hidden track, and and for. I guess younger listeners of this podcast, when you would buy a CD, particularly around this time in the 90s, early 90s, there'd often be a secret track. And by that, I mean, it's not listed on the album cover art or anything like that. And then you think that the album's over and then bam, in comes a song that you didn't know was there. And there's there's lots and lots of examples of it. And this is one of them. And this is a song uh, infamously called Endless Nameless. Uh, The only way to hear it is to let the CD end and then you wait just under 14 minutes while for it to kick in. So once you knew it was there, you could skip forward on your button and get to it. Uh, It's not on the album art. It wasn't on the initial pressings. And on later pressings, it was also left off. Interestingly enough, I read that when Kurt realized it wasn't on the initial pressings, he rang up David Geffen or someone and he blew up and he said, get it on there, which they did. According to Dave Grohl, he heard one story at least of someone taking a copy of Nevermind back to the record store for a refund after he thought it was broken when the song suddenly appeared. (laughs) Many other people thought there was something wrong with their multi-disc CD players. Uh, And as I've noted, it's a lot of jamming type noise with Kurt yelling some disturbing lyrics. And they did play it live. Well, they played it live, I think, more than once. I think it was a thing they did. But quite uh, infamously, they played, I think, Reading Festival in England. It was a big occasion for them. And I think they finished the set and they went nuts. And then I think Kurt dislocated his shoulder, jumping into the drum kit and it was, it was all on. So uh, definitely a release for them live. When I saw them play uh, the big, the first of a big day out, they trashed the stage. It was one of their things, one of the things they did. That my friend is the Nevermind album. There is one thing we need to discuss though, and it's quite fascinating. And that is the artwork. So as you can maybe visualise it, the album cover shows a naked baby boy swimming underwater with a US dollar bill on a fish hook just out of his out of his reach. The band settled on the image of a four month old kid called Spencer Eldon, and he was the son of a friend, so it was a it was within their kind of circle. Geffen Records were concerned that the infant's penis visible in the photo would cause offence. <laughs> Uh, But then Kurt said, no, 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 Uh, the only compromise he would accept would be a sticker covering the penis, reading, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. (laughs) So they went without the sticker. So that's that, right? I didn't really know about this. If I knew about this, I forgot. But in August 2021, so not very long ago, the young man who's now of an age, Spencer Eldon, he filed a lawsuit against... Uh, Cobain's estate and against Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic claiming the use of his likeness on the album cover was made without his consent or that of his legal guardians and that it violated federal child pornography statutes and that it resulted in lifelong damages quote lifelong damages the lawsuit was dismissed by a judge in early 2022 noting that Eldon had spent three decades profiting from his celebrity <laughs> as the self-anointed Nirvana baby, having recreated the artwork several times, <laughs> and he has it tattooed on his chest.
1: The judge's comments are all time. I read about this too, and the judge basically said, mate, you're a dickhead, go away. One of the, one of the great, terrible lawsuits of all time. It's like, I'm the baby, I'm the baby, I'm the baby. Ah, oh, I'm out of money, not
0: You'd see him in the courtroom, and they'd be like, "Sir, lift your shirt," and there's like the the tattoo of the album cover. Are you really troubled by that? I found that astounding. I just, I was like, "What is this?" That was fascinating reading for me. So, while that is Nirvana's "Never Mind," and as I tell the people where we work, so people, if they if they didn't hear the first podcast episode of the Beatles, go listen to that. We explain who we are, what we do. If you don't know us, we work together. Wally and I work together. And we work with, dare I say, a lot of younger people than us who work on a casual basis. And I often will throw out the line, you know, I saw Nirvana. You know, I saw Kurt Cobain. And so some of them it's like, wow. And other people are like, who are you talking about? But I did get to see them uh, when I was in high school. They played the first big day out. So they toured here a few months after Nevermind came out. So Nevermind was going crazy around the world. They'd already committed to an Australian tour. And they ended up playing really small shows. They played... Capacity venues of like a thousand people tops ended up doing a whole bunch because they were in such demand. And it all culminated in the first of a big day out, which was a Sydney only festival, the first ever one. And they weren't even the feature band. The Violent Femmes were supposed to be the feature band. And it was a whole list of, it's an amazing lineup if you go look at it. But Nirvana really weren't a feature until they went bonkers. Uh, they played the Horden Pavilion at the big day out at about seven o'clock at night. So they weren't even at, in the headline spot. They sort of had them a bit earlier. Wow. This is all documented. This is, this is not me breaking news, but people obviously started waiting in the Horde and you know, a few bands before they were coming on because you wanted to get your spot. There was probably like 10,000 people at the, at the festival, but the place only held like the Horde and only held like 6,000 people. So people were going to miss out they had a few other bands that were, you know, of note, Playing at the same time. And obviously, you wouldn't want to be those bands. I, I think, Wally, from memory, I'm not even making this up. I'm pretty sure Yothu Yindi with a band before them. Was it Yothu Am I making that up? I know the Beasts of Bourbon with Tex Perkins played. Maybe they were before them. Maybe it wasn't Yothu Yindi. Yothi maybe Yothi I'm making Yindi. that up.
1: Yothu Yindi into, into Nirvana is a hell of let a beast. Let me
0: just Google this while we're talking. Yothu Yindi, big day out. Well, they played. Wow, there you go. Let's have a look, yeah. the
1: Indy's a blast from the past. If people don't know who Nirvana is, they certainly wouldn't know who Indy is.
0: Dude, they played. Man, I, I'm sure... <laughs> you know what? Let's just go with it. I'm sure they played before them. I think Treaty, yeah, Treaty was still a massive hit at that point. Uh, but anyway, there were a lot of people in there, in between bands, whether it was Yothy Indy or The Beast Bourbon, I can't quite remember, but in between there was just this atmosphere, man, and it was starting to build. And so my friends and I, we were... Probably in year ten, maybe, so we were still young young men from the suburbs we weren't real this was our first ever festival what? it was you know it was a big deal for us, but we were very much wide eyed and was it your first ever check shirt? no, I was wearing the nevermind shirt I was one of the one of the goons wearing the wearing the shirt. We were like well yeah, let's stay in the mosh pit. This is going to be amazing. So we stayed in the mosh pit. <laughs> we were sort of, yeah, you know, we were of a certain height and weight. We weren't like little boys. We were, you know, teenage boys. But we were in there with some real men, you know, <laughs> and it started getting, yeah, you know, it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They came on, you know what I'm going to do Well, I'm just going to type in setlist. How good is setlist.com?
1: Amazing. If you're listening and waiting for Schnaz, one of the greatest websites of all time.
0: So my friends and I were waiting, 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 and then it's time. And the place is just bonkers. And they started with a song called Aneurysm, which was an earlier song of theirs. It's not on Nevermind. And it was just crazy. It was so intense. Yeah. Like, I remember just feeling the music in my gut. It was one of those concerts where it wasn't so much the noise, it was just the power. These three guys, it was crazy. And so we're on the floor in the mosh pit, like pretty close to the stage. And even we just went, you know what? This is just chaos. Let's get the hell out of here. And so by the <laughs> second song, which was Drain You, we will, somehow we snagged some seats on the side of the horde and maybe people just like going to the mosh pit. But we got some seats on the side and it was yeah. amazing. Like we watched them from there. But what happened at, at a point early on is there were so many people in the venue, they had to bring in – Uh, a way to cool down the crowd. So you've got like your security with your buckets of water or whatever, your bottles of water, but it wasn't doing the job. And I kid you not, they stopped the show like between songs and they brought out like fire hoses and they were hosing down the crowd, (laughs) hosing down with fire hoses. Cause it was January 26th. That was, you know, peak summer. It's just one of those things, but this was, there was like 9,000 people inside it. Like it was chaos. It was it was absolute <laughs> chaos, but it was beautiful. It was so amazing. They, the set list was Aneurysm, Drain You, School, Floyd the Barber, About a Girl, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Polly, Sliver, Come As You Are, Lithium, Being a Sun, On a Plane. The encore was something in the way that Endless Nameless. There you go, they played it. But wow. such an amazing experience. Something on the Forget, something on the Forget to See Again. I was just lucky sort of right time right place right age kind of thing
1: what what year was that it was started 92. 92. so
0: the album had only been out for three or four months and they would then go back to america and they would play virtually arenas after that
1: they hit that they hit the beat time do you want me to make you feel really old if that's in 1992. we both love the uh, movie back to the future yeah i think everybody loves the movie sure back to the future and yeah, back to the future they go back from 1985 to 1955 that's 30 years if you go back 30 years from the, 30 years from now when marty mcfly gets to 1955 the song you hear is uh mr sandman bring me a dream if you did if you did back to the future now the song you'd probably hear is "Smell like teen spirit
0: that's amazing once we do enough music episodes we'll do a a film version of this and we'll do back to the future Anyway, that's me bragging about my uh, seeing Kirk Cobain. And on any given day, you'll hear me saying that to just the postman or the stranger up the street. You know I saw Kirk Cobain play. <laughs> that was never mine. Now, are we going to give it a rating? Is that what we do on all of our episodes? Is that we do, give it a rating?
1: We'll do our, add our songs to our playlist and our songs that maybe we'll skip from the playlist, and then we can give it a okay. score out of 10 if you like. You want to go first or I'll go first? Uh, you can or... go first
0: because I forgot about that. I'm going to add to my playlist. How many songs are we adding?
1: You could go three okay. or four. Let's okay. go three. So my three to the playlist, I'm going to do definitely in bloom. I'm going to go lithium. I'll go Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's silly not to. I know it's, it's easy to say that uh, you've heard it too many times, but yes, if you're picking songs off this album, it's definitely going to go in there. What's your three?
0: You have to go Smells Like Teen Spirit. There's, there's no way around it. You could have like an academic come in and tell you why not, and you'd go, come on, man, like it smells like Teen Spirit. That's that's going on there. <laughs> I think for that reason, I'm not going to put Lithium on there, even though that would be my go-to, but I'm going to leave that off because I think it is represented enough in Smells Like Teen Spirit. I'm going to do... Mm -hmm. I'm going to do... I'm just going to go Drain You and Lounge Act. I'm leaving out the Fast Intense songs, and I'm just going Mm -hmm. with, yeah, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and then the, the double act of Drain You and Lounge Act. And for songs I'm leaving off which I think I've already kind of explained. Look, shockingly, I think it might be In Bloom. And I like it. Don't get me wrong, I like it. But these songs are of a certain high standard for me. So I'd probably also throw in Stay Away and possibly one of your favourites in On A Plane. They're definitely not filler. They're definitely not fluff. But maybe subject matter is just a bit lighter and just the whole thing a bit lighter. Too
1: poppy, too poppy for Nirvana
0: fans. But I like their pop. I mean, one of my favourite songs of theirs is a single called Sliver, which is essentially about being his grandma's house, <laughs> you know. So, so <laughs> I like their pop, but um, that's where I would go. What's your What's your overall rating going to be?
1: I can't remember what we did for Abbey Road because it was so long ago. Look, even as not a Nirvana fan, I'm happy to say that this is an 8 out of 10.
0: I am going to give it, and I haven't thought about this as in a whole.
1: Come on, are you giving the 10 on that? Are you going to give it a 10? I can't no. give it a
0: 10 because <laughs> I've sort of said there's a few, not criticisms, but just weaker moments. And don't get me wrong, their weaker moments are better than a lot of other bands. But I think I'll give it a nine. I think I'm going a nine because a nine out of 10 albums, A, pretty good, and B, still pretty life changing. I just.
1: 90% is so a distinction. Absolutely.
0: A like, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. I keep saying that, but it's a fact. And thank goodness they came along because maybe you and I would have been out seeing Def Leppard on the weekend. You know what I mean? Like, and not, I, I like Def Leppard somewhat, but I'm, I don't really want to go see them. You know what I mean? So You've upset all the
1: Def Leppard fans in
0: the well, TV. We might do a Def Leppard album, so never say never. Well, my point was... For Sydney sides, for Australians, Deaf Leopard and Motley Crue just did a tour, and that's cool. I actually think that's cool. But I'm glad that I wasn't so excited. I had to go out there and drop my money on those bands, and that would be my thing. I'd rather go see the Foo Fighters in December, for example. Anyway, that's a whole other. Where, you know, if you say to me we're doing a Deaf Leopard album, that's what we're doing. So, have you thought about what the next album's going to be without necessarily giving it away? Because I think if we're going back and forth, it's probably your choice.
1: I've thought about a few. It's my choice. It depends how old you want to go. Do you want to go old or you want to go new? You can pick. You can go seventies or you can go nineties. Like <laughs> oh, new
0: be? like the nineties.
1: <laughs> yeah, new. Thirty years ago, back to the future. <laughs> uh,
0: well, why don't we leave that as a bit of a mystery, a bit of a a bit of a, a cliffhanger for our listeners? And we'll try and get a new episode out quicker than the last one. The last one I think was around june or july maybe so six six months might be a bit of an exaggeration but it's been a while
1: let's say before Christmas. yeah yeah absolutely let's
0: say that and let's do that uh thanks for listening really appreciate it uh if you want to subscribe to our podcast you can just do that very easily and then they will appear as frequently as we do them and uh i think wally set up an instagram page as well so We're having fun doing this. Thanks so much for listening. And Wally, any other last thoughts before we go?
1: Nirvana, I liked it.
0: This has reinvigorated your thoughts on Nirvana.
1: I think that's fair to say. I might have to check out uh, in utero next.
0: That's getting pretty weird while in utero. Maybe, (laughs) maybe down the line we can cover that up and we'll see. Alright, thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode as soon as we can. Until then, this has been Album Adventures with Wally and Shinaz. And a shout out to our friend Gary for doing the very sick artwork. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>